Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Denise Hearn. Denise is an advisor, author, and project catalyzer. She's a senior fellow at the American Economic Liberties Project, a Washington, D.C.-based anti-monopoly organization where she co-leads the Access to Markets Initiative. She's also the co-author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies, and the Death of Competition. Um, This is a great book. We're going to be spending most of our time kind of talking about the ideas presented in it. And I want to welcome Denise to The Deep Dive. How are you? Hi, Philip. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, excited to see what we get into today. Absolutely. You know, we we had an opportunity to actually meet and and talk briefly at a at an event that we were both at. Um, I guess a couple months ago now it feels like mm-hmm. in Texas, and we were introduced by a great friend of the show, Indy Johar, who mm-hmm. emphatically told me that I had to get you on the show. And Indy is someone who I, I trust completely. And he said that you were amazing. I read your book. He was right. So <laughs> That's so kind. I have to give a shout out to Indy for, for taking the time to put us in the same space, mm-hmm. particularly at an event that was filled with a lot of things going on, a lot of people moving from point A to point B. So it's not always easy to connect to folks, but he, he made sure that we did that. So I want to thank him for that. And I want to thank you for agreeing. Well, and I, I also want to echo my thanks to him, but I have to tell you that I said to him, all right, who's cool here that I should meet? And he goes, oh, there's Philip, you have to meet him. Um, <laughs> so you were the first, you were the first person that he identified as, as someone that, uh, that I should talk to as well. So um, I think the, the admiration goes both ways. No, yeah, ab- absolutely. He's a, he's a great thinker, you know, and um, I, I pride myself. I, I hope that I do this and I hope my listeners will agree that a big part of what the show is all about is bringing on, you know, big thinkers, right? People who really want to engage around alternative ways of thinking about stuff. And so I think that's a perfect segue to kind of get into the book and and, and you're thinking about it. So before we really get deep into discussing the ideas of the book, right? The myth of capitalism, very big concept, you know, this idea around competition and monopolies. What was your what kind of really was the spark for you to engage in even thinking about these ideas and and writing the book with your co-author? Yeah. So I think, you know, life probably makes more sense looking back on it than it does when you're, when you're living through it. And I think now I can trace, you know, a narrative of seeing that from a, a young age, I had a pretty felt sense of the world being quite un- unjust and quite unequal. And I think I I really wrestled with questions about why, you know, first from more of a spiritual angle. And then I was working for a macroeconomic research firm in um, London at the time. And then, uh, you know, as I began to learn about financial systems and economic systems, realizing that there were structural dynamics, which really affected, you know, these kind of market allocation questions and that, uh, when I when I was working for that firm, that my co-author Jonathan Tupper, who founded it, had written a few books before, and him and I had engaged in a number of conversations about you know these macroeconomic drivers of inequality. You know, Piketty's book had come out around that time, which uh, kind of really launched the conversation to you know to a global scale. And and he said, you know, I think I'm going to co-author my, my or I'm going to author my third book about this, and I'd like you to co-author it with me. And as we were looking at the data, we sort of realized that at the time there was this underappreciated narrative and culprit, if you will, around industry concentration, particularly in the U.S. and the role that it's played in, you know, declining wages and higher prices for consumers and all these things that we outline in the book. But I think for me, it was, you know, it was a it was both like an intellectual curiosity and a desire to understand how economic systems work, as well as, you know, more of a kind of moral, spiritual question for me about how I can apply myself to this work to try to bring about 
more, you know, a, a world that is that functions, you know, hopefully a little bit better for more for more people. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of ideas in there, right? Because it, it's it's funny when you talked about this. At least for you, it, it's starting off in this spiritual place, right? Like looking out at the world and seeing injustice. And you know, I got a lot of notes, so I might be skipping around a little bit here. But I, I this is not an original question, but I just sort of jotted it down as you, as you were talking. Is that often when I when I think about capitalism and people who are listeners of the show or they are friends of mine, you know, know my position regarding capitalism and and how I'm I'm in the camp of doubtful toward its ability to be reformed, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. that's kind of a, a, a way I will phrase that and we'll just kind of get deeper into it. But one thing that I that I have conceded is that in in my mind, and I'd be curious as to your your thoughts on this, that capitalism in, in one way, shape or form is so pervasive because it takes on elements of of spirituality in in many ways. You know, you reference um, Warren Buffett very early on in the book. And, you know, one of his nicknames is literally the Oracle of Omaha, right? So that comes with a, a sort of um, spiritual or, or religious overtone. Absolutely. And so I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on that, like capitalism as this sort of prevailing pervasive force that cuts across many different ways in which our society is structured, spiritual being one of them. I mean, I absolutely agree. And I think that capitalism in a way has also become this sort of meta narrative that's really in a way elevated over and above what it is in reality, because, you know, we, we say the word capitalism as if it's a monolith, but actually the way that economic systems function across different nation states, the, the way that they, you know, it functions globally um, is quite varied and variable depending on the the interaction between states and markets and how states have, you know, how various nation states have decided to set the terms and rules of those markets. And, and so I think that, yeah, to me, capitalism in a way is almost, I don't find the term very helpful in trying to have deeper conversations about like what we, what we desire commercial systems to look like in the future, because it now has it's it's an emotionally charged word as you say it's a spiritual word you know it's become a religion unto itself both i would say it for its adherents and its opponents that i find that it can be distracting and you know when people say like oh you know i always used to make the point that um the heritage foundation as example which is a very conservative think tank in the us ranks the freest economies in the world right which uh, which nations have the uh, are the, the sort of like bastions of free markets. And it's so interesting because they they usually list Hong Kong and Singapore as the number one and two spaces, uh, number two, um, you know, in the list. And I used to live in Singapore when I was younger and I've spent quite a bit of time in Hong Kong as well. And, you know, Singapore, 80% of Singaporeans live in state-owned housing and they have uh, huge sovereign wealth funds that invest in, invest in state-owned enterprises. And they actually have quite a distinct state-run economic policy. So it's also very strange that they're always listed as like one of the freest economy, you know, they're sort of the bastion of capitalism and yet. And so the point is that, you know, no economic system is explicitly socialist or capitalist. Like every every nation has a has an economy that exists on the spectrum somewhere, somewhere there as a mixed economy. I also did want to just say that, you know, the book came out four years ago now. And mm -hmm. at the time, I think... I, you know, I co-authored it. So there's, you know, so I think people think that whatever is in the book is sort of carte blanche, what I also think about the world, which it's not necessarily. And I would also say that four years later, I have, I think, I share some of the skepticism that you <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. articulated at the beginning of, <laughs> of this question, which is, you know, I don't necessarily consider myself a capitalist um, or, you know, want to ascribe to that term. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But I think that, you know, in the book, it's a little bit more favorable about this kind of idea that you can reform existing systems. And oh, yeah, ab absolutely. And, and you know, the, the notion of, of kind of going through these ideas is not even with the idea that we're going through page by page and, and you know, <laughs> like holding, like 
are those your words? You know, right, 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 right. Re- relative to to your co-author and and vice versa, right? Like I, I think the the essence of this is to is to wrestle with the big ideas, right? And mm. even having an opportunity to, re- to reflect on you know the difference between the book being published four years ago and now, right? Like what has changed? Like I think one of one of the things that we need to confront. And it's not pertaining to this particular conversation, but just generally, right, is that, you know, as we get new information, as we experience new things, all of us should change, right? Like, I I would be deeply ashamed if I held the same ideas that I had, Mm. you know, you know, five years ago, much less, you know, (laughs) going further back into my past. So I think we should all always be challenging ourselves to kind of find a little bit more context, right? Because the conversation changes, right? But there are some core ideas that kind of continue to come up, right? And and that's why I find these conversations so so interesting. Mm. You know, when I was, you know, dating myself when I was in high school and college, capitalism versus socialism and all these kind of systems were things that you debated in a class, right? Mm-hmm. Like in a mm-hmm. college <laughs> class, not even an MBA class. Any serious discussion about the merits of capitalism did not exist in popular culture. Mm. On the fringes, but that fringes, again, to me, were tied to academia. It's it's only really with Occupy that, you, that I think you see a real reckoning with capitalism and what it means in sort of what I call like the popular sphere, right? Mm-hmm. People who are not engaged in financial markets or not engaged in economics were all of a sudden having conversations about, does this shit work? You know, and and those who are who are also deeply engaged in those spaces. I remember maybe a pre-pandemic, the Milken Institute, their whole topic was capitalism. Does it work? You know, like right, you know, right. paraphrasing, which was something you would have never seen, particularly from an organization named after Michael Milken, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think your book and others' work is contributing to like a different way in which we're having this conversation. So having said all that. Can we kind of cut through all the many myriad definitions of of capitalism and try to get to some of the instinctive or sort of base level values of it to kind of understand, is this something that is good, quote unquote, good and or fixable, right? Because I think one of the things that is offered in the book is that competition can help to kind of level off some of capitalism's worst instincts. And so I'm curious, do you still think that that's possible or are the worst instincts just part of it, right? <laughs> Is it a bug or a feature? And I probably asked like five questions in there. So pick, no, no, wherever, no. pick wherever you want to dive in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds good. Yeah, I mean, I think on the competition front, so I still I still do some work on competition policy, antitrust policy in the US and in Canada. And uh, I'm actually Canadian originally. And so... I do think that it is a necessary but wholly insufficient, you know, it's sort of a first horizon remedy, if you will. So if we think that we need to reform, you know, the system sort of as it as it is. And I think, by the way, that like these terms, again, I don't know, I have problems with them, like the system, you know, because everything that we experience is is an emergent outcome based on, you know, the interactions of (laughs) billions of people contracting together, as well as like a myriad of international, federal, municipal laws, you know, coalescing the influence of investors, all of this. So it's, so when we talk about, you know, the system as, again, as a monolith, I think it kind of obscures this reflexive process that's continually happening. And the system is like always, you know, like a, like a starling murmuration, it's always shape-shifting slightly. And so anyways, that's that's an aside. But I think competition policy, I think, does matter. And just because markets need functional sort of guardrails to say this is what's appropriate, this is what's inappropriate to do in markets. And that's what laws are for. And competition laws are important because they say, hey, you can't do deceptive marketing. Hey, if you're a really big company, you can't abuse your dominant position in the marketplace. Or if you're a power buyer, you know, like a Walmart or something, you can't be you can't be charging different prices to your suppliers based on the size that they are. I think, you know, something that's the Robinson Patman Act in the US. And so I think these laws do matter because they're really the only legal protection we have that 
says, you know, this is what it means to conduct fair commerce within markets. And if you're abusing, if if you're abusing that position that you have, or if you're acting unfairly or acting illegally, then you deserve to be punished for that, you know? And, and I think that, so as long as we have, you know, market-based systems of commerce, I think you're going to need these type of laws. I think the interesting question, something I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, the overreach of markets into so many areas of public life. So I'm reading the moral limits of markets and, you know, markets are not the only way of allocating goods in a society. We have many ways, you know, you can do it through a queue where you line up for something. You can do it based on need. You can do it based on merit. You can, you know, that's a whole nother rabbit hole, but there, there are many ways in which you can allocate goods and markets are only one way of doing that. But what's happened over the last 40 years is we've let markets encroach on more and more and more of public life and, you know, into natural ecosystems. So now we have carbon, you know, carbon credits and we have, you know, water credits, and all these, all these market schemes to try to allocate goods. And we really haven't had a conversation at a societal level to say, is this what we want? You know, is it acceptable to have, you know, human health care allocated based on a market scheme? And um, and we've sort of assumed, again, carte blanche, that like that's the most effective way because there was this intellectual capture to try to push that narrative that markets were the most efficient way of allocating. And I just don't think that that's true. And so to me, the question is, you know, and I've been reading like this morning, I was reading more about the rights of nature movement and how natural ecosystems, rivers, mountains, lakes are being given legal personhood. And then, you know, a, a set of guardians or trustees will represent them legally in court. And, you know, I think that this is I think this is really important. I think this is a huge new movement. I'm calling it like the fifth sector, you know, where there's this rise of all these kind of autonomous self-owning whether they're natural agents, whether they're entities or whether they're, you know, other forms. And Indy talks about this too, with like a sovereign surveillance ca camera, you know, what would that look like? But I think that's going to really fundamentally, you know, restructure how we think about contracting, how we think about all these questions of like, what's appropriate? How do you actually, how do you actually negotiate when a land developer wants to build this condo and, the river and the watershed is saying, actually, we don't want you to do that. How do you prioritize whose needs take precedence? What are the, so to me, those are the really interesting questions. And I think they're only going to become more salient. And, you know, this idea of kind of, yeah, capitalism, I agree with you. There's, there was a whole suite of conversations there for a few years around, like, can we reimagine capitalism, you know, all of this. And sorry, this is like a long and random rambling answer, but one. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. And, I, and it's, you're giving me more questions. So it's all good. Well, I did remember actually that I should have said earlier when you asked about the like religious component of capitalism, that it occurred to me once that there are kind of these different quadrants of perspectives and, you know, some are full adherents, like they're full believers in capitalism, no reforms needed. Right. And the sort of free marketers, classic neoliberals. And then there's the reformers who are think like, okay, we just do a few tweaks here and there. Maybe we change a few laws. You know, we don't need to fundamentally rethink any of the paradigmatic things that underpin this. Like, how do we understand value? How do we, what is, what even is profit? How do we measure it? You know, then there's like the apostates who have totally, you know, they, they may be Marxist or something, but they've like fully rejected the religion of capitalism. And they say, okay, you know, we're on the, we're on the other side. And then I have what you call the prophets, which are people who are, I find the most interesting, who are really sort of provocateurs, who are asking completely different questions, like this question of what if we started it from a fundamentally different place and actually assigned nature rights? How, how is that going to shift the way that we understand commercial agreements? You know, and so I, I like, following the prophets, because I think that, you know, similar to the sort of prophets of old, they stand there and they, they provoke the king and they say, Hey, <laughs> you know, what's happening isn't, isn't just, and, uh, this is what I think needs to, to shift. You know, some of the prophets get killed, some of them become highly esteemed, but, you know, but they, they kind of, um, change the terms of the debate altogether, which I think yeah. is much more interesting. I, I agree with that. I think, well, I, I like the frame of it, you know, 
in the sense that one is in keeping with how we started, kind of bringing us back to this, the spiritual aspect of it. And I'm often frustrated by not our particular conversation, but just these conversations in general, because it, it, it does start with the predominant notion of, okay, this is good because it works to some degree, mm-hmm. which then leads you to when there's pushback, well, what do we have that's better? Right. And if you don't have an immediate, like, this is better, at least in some form, then it's like, oh, well, let's just go back to like this thing and mm-hmm. try, you know, like I said, curb its, its, its worst instincts. And right. I think you said, you said it was all very interesting, but at the very beginning, you mentioned how all of us are in, you know, the sort of not rejection, but like being careful about like the word system, right? Like these things, like, you know, it's kind of like when people say them, you know, mm, like mm, mm. they're doing it. Right. And it's like, well, who's, who's they, right. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things that initially sort of leapt out at me is that for, for many people within capitalism, like I said, prevailing thing, that's how we've kind of organized the world's economies to certain, pers- pers- um, certain perspective, you know, a lot of this stuff is happening to them, right? Like they haven't really made that Faustian bargain with capitalism as much as it's been hoisted upon them with with very little choice, right? So they're kind of living in a, in a world of lower paying jobs, you know, job precariousness, wage precariousness, and climate precariousness, right? Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. clearly the global north consumes and is the largest kind of proponent of all of the markets that cause climate change, but yet it's people in the global South that deal with it. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're dealing with it first. So even when people talk about like well, climate crisis is coming, I'm like, well, climate crisis is here mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for many. It's yeah. just not here maybe for us, myself included, mm-hmm. complected like the global South, but I live in a global North. So I, I wonder about like, how do we parse through that reality? Right. That, you know, when I see, I live in New York and I see these folks kind of on their scooters, almost killing themselves to deliver Grubhub Mm. by some sort of like, you know, surveillance capitalist, you know, app where Mm. they're kind of graded, scrambling to keep a good grading so they can continue to kind of race around on electric bikes and shit. I laugh because it's sad, right? Like it deeply saddens me, right? So how do we balance that? Because I'm not sure, like, what did that person sign up for, right? A lot of like tech fascists would be like, well, they signed up for the app, right? So <laughs> they're, they're, they, they've agreed to this, right? So there's that part. So put a pin in that very long question. And then the other piece, I agree about like, how do we think about the natural world and giving them rights, quote unquote. But I am also worried, worried, concerned, interested in how do we, is that as radical a step as it might appear, right? Because I, I, anytime people start talking about contracts and now I, I could just hear the person that's going to be like, well, I made a contract with that mountain to like blow it up, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I've not thought about this deeply, but I'm just saying that wherever we start to put like legal shit on things, it concerns me, right? Like indigenous had lots of treaties, lots right. of agreements. Right. And no, them, those shits were agreements until they weren't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm curious about all of that. I know they're two separate things, but they were in part of the same answer. <laughs> no, well, I actually like I know I agree with you. And I think that they actually are related in the sense that it just makes me think of, you know, of bargaining power in those contractual agreements or in those relationships. And, you know, that's why I think that the, the anti-monopoly movement is really important because it brings to the forefront the idea of power and bargaining power and of course many other movements too and they've they've been talking about this you know for a very long time as well you know movements like movement uh organizers in particular but you know when you think about a gig worker what you have seen is the rise of kind of the middleman economy or the gatekeeper economy where they insert themselves you know as as platforms, quote unquote, or, you know, and that that's what they've tried to claim, right, is that they're just neutral platforms, that they don't really, they're just facilitating markets and that, you know, 
customers and workers are, uh, as you said, willingly agree to enter into these contractual exchanges, you know, through the platform. But the the problem is, is that the, of course, we know that that's not true and that the platforms exert a tremendous amount of power on both sides of the equation where they can, you know, they set the terms and the prices, both for consumers and for labor, that they, you've seen a proliferation of like, you know, bat coercive contract terms. So that's something that we work on as well through the American Economic Liberties Project, where if you're a supplier, or even if you're a consumer, like all these things show up in your contract that, you know, you just click agree, but you sign away legal rights. So like your right to actually take them to court within a class action, you know, that there might be mandatory arbitration in your contract. You may have to disclose or like give away, you know, IP or it, I mean, depending on the circumstance, right? There's like a number of different of these kind of coercive or unfair contract terms. And the reality is if you're a gig worker or you're a consumer, the relative bargaining power that you have to actually take on the platform and say, hey, you know, this this isn't going to work for me is is relatively small. It's like pretty, you know. And so, yeah, so I totally agree that I think there's so much of this that people didn't sign up for that we use the legal infrastructure, you know, to as like an edifice that sometimes worsens, you know, these these outcomes. So I totally agree with you there. But I also think that in the rights of nature, you know, thing, I agree that I think that the devil's always in the details, like how who's gonna who is entrusted as guardian of these of these entities, because they can't speak for themselves. So who is going to speak on their behalf? What kind of, you know, power and authority do these do these legal protections have when they actually go to court? And you've seen kind of a mixed bag there so far from my research is, you know, some of the cases get thrown out. Some of them have been successful in blocking, you know, potential developments as an example, which, you know, otherwise would have gone through because there was no ability to challenge. So I think that I think it is a mixed bag, but I also think that um, I'm heartened by it because I think that it's because what I like about it is you see what the finance people are doing, right? Which is saying, oh, we're going to treat it as natural capital and we're going to put a financial value on it. We're going to put on our balance sheet and then we're going to figure out how to trade it and protect it that way. And I just think that that starting position of treating everything Every physical and material reality as an as a potential financial asset is not the axiom I want to start from. I want to start from every living being is entitled to dignity, respect, and protection and safety. And we need to figure out what that looks like because as humans, we have completely decimated and destroyed, you know, all these you know, more than human entities and with with such little regard to their own right to just an autonomous life outside of human interference that I just I like that starting position better, you know, as a place to think about how we're going to do this moving forward. But I agree that it's, you know, of course, it's like ripe for all kinds of potential abuses. Yeah, ab- absolutely. But I think it's important, like, to have the conversation, right, to think about the the way in which we're we're framing these issues and it's 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 very easy when we've lived in a certain system right and and you know capitalism is not just this kind of bringing us back full circle it's not just the economics of the exchange it's the it's all of the structures that go along with it right that's why i think it was important it's the the legal perspectives right that enforce the market perspective and it's just really that kind of spiritual and or philosophical underpinning of viewing everything in the world through that lens that you just mentioned, right? It's a it's a balance sheet. It's an asset or it's a liability. It's There's some value that I can attach to it. And so little of like our free time is something that, you know, like free, right? Like we've already attached a value to it. Mm-hmm. But over over the years, as the system gets more precarious, our free time is even the thing that's more of a of a commodity, right? If you have a hobby, it's like, oh, you want to sell that on Etsy, you know? Any anything, <laughs> right. you know, any, anything you do needs is only worth doing it if you can sell it mm-hmm. to somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever it is, right? And and so so much of that just seeps into so many of these conversations. So I I find it challenging when people talk about like what is emerging when it seems like okay you're just putting like a fresh paint of coat on something that i've seen before right like i'm 1987 i'm reading liar's poker again right and oh, it's i haven't just, read that what's oh that? yeah <laughs> liar's poker is unfortunately it's it's actually a really good book 
if you're interested in financial markets. But it's one of these books that's like a Bible for anyone who's interested in going to Wall Street. Oh, 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 got it. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll stay in like my era, you know, that kind of, I, I started college in 1990. So as I started to look at my career after college, and then definitely by the time I was ready to go to business school, like Liar's Poker was one of those books you had to say you read, right? Reminiscences mm. of a Stock Operator, you know, everybody knows Wall Street. Like Wall Street is godfather to like Wall Street assholes. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Like, you know, I, I know Oliver Stone meant this as a cautionary tale, but I think it was anything but. Like, I think Wall Street propelled mm -hmm. more jerk offs to go pursue that career than anything else. Like, he'd been better off if he wanted to do something about Wall Street, just don't make that movie. Right, right, right. Because <laughs> right? Gordon Gecko left that movie being the hero. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Most people wanted to be him, regardless of it being like fell fall from grace. Nobody cares. Right. 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 And the greed uh, is good was supposed to be like so shocking and appalling that everyone would realize. And then everyone's just like, oh, yeah, greed is good. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah. you know what? That gecko guy, he has <laughs> he has all the right ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it, you know. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. Then we're then we're off to the races, right? And I and I think that's that's what makes all of this so interesting because it is it's in the pop culture, mm -hmm. it's in the textbooks, it's it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, and you see how much it, it just makes me think of you see how much narrative and meta narrative and paradigms really do shape reality and like my friend um katrine marcel who's amazing she's written a couple of books the first the first one title is fantastic who cooked adam smith's dinner about gender you know gender norms and economics and how they get completely ignored like economics completely ignores gender and you know of course race and power dynamics as well it's just like doesn't anyway as a total aside you know i think when uh when economists talk about their theory of rational, you know, rational humans acting. Yeah. It, to me, it's like the economic version of saying, I don't see color because it's like a refusal to see that markets are not just neutral entities where everyone comes as an equal participant, <laughs> you know, anyways, but she, she got me onto this idea. When you look actually at the, the skyline of cities, you see the kind of economic norms and, and paradigms of the day reflected. And so you know, if you went back to 15th century London, you would see the spires of the churches, you know, standing tall, highest above the city. And then, you know, later it became the parliament buildings because those were the sources of power. And now it's all the financial towers because that's where power now sits in, in the economy and in our society and structures. And, and it really does make you realize how powerful collective stories are in actually literally scaffolding the world around us as well as you know scaffolding all of the other kind of dark matter as indy joe hart would say you know the the regulatory infrastructure the legal infrastructure the all the other things that then um support those kind of edifices you know I'll, i've i've not heard that metaphor but i'll i'll take it a step further because i was talking about this very recently here in new york on 57th street which was a, a very famous street back in the day for like music there are a lot of like music producers. And when I say music, I'm talking about like that ragtime type of like, you know, barbershop quartet <laughs> type of music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like yeah. that was, that was once the big home of that. So very small buildings, um, very small footprint, but as a lot of those buildings have kind of gentrified out, that's mm -hmm. now billionaire, billionaire row, right? Oh, a lot of wow. Yeah. Super tall residential buildings, some of the tallest in, in the city now that are also Ironically, maybe this is an interesting point as well to your colleague's point or, or example that many of these buildings are also very tall, they're super gross, and they're structurally unsound because they're, <laughs> they're, they're building these incredibly tall towers, like 90, 100 tower, 100 foot mm -hmm. towers, um, 100 story towers rather, on, on footprints that are actually too small to Support, support them from an engineering yeah. perspective. So yeah. <laughs> the buildings sway, people get sick, things don't work. So there's a wonderful story that brought me so much joy about one of the residents of one of these buildings, $10 million penthouses where nothing the fuck works. And I was like, 
this was awesome. Like this was like a viral story in the New York Times and everybody was like so happy. Like you rich fuck serves you right. <laughs> you know, so maybe that's a that's a thing, right? Like at least back in the day, you can say those examples of the church and the parliament and so on. The buildings were at least functional, right? They, they worked, they were beautiful. Now we have these super tall towers that don't work at all. Is that yes. a metaphor for our current financial situation? I'm curious. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the whole financialization thing as well is fascinating. And I, it does feel like it's, uh, in many ways, it's just like completely untethered from reality. And, and yeah, making, there, there's so much systemic risk now in financial markets because of the dynamics that that we've wrought that like shaky towers seems like a completely apt metaphor, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Elevators that don't work. Yeah. And I mean, like all it takes is, you know, one exogenous shock, whatever that is, like to, to really have, you know, to potentially crumble, crumble the edifice or, you know, to have the building actually um, like destroyed in a way because, yeah. because it is. And yeah. And I mean, I would say that like the accumulation of the, the vast amounts of debt in the system, you know, is a really big one across all different levels, like nation states, individuals, you know, corporations, and all the central banks know this. And so that's why they just keep doing like extend and pretend where they're printing money, trying to stabilize, you know, markets that they know are fundamentally unhealthy, but nobody wants to be the one to pull the curtain down on the whole thing because nobody wants to be responsible for inflicting like widespread economic damage. Right. But it sort of feels like nobody really knows how this is going to end. And there's this, I think, massive hubris that we can control, you know, that, and I mean, you would think that the, the financial crisis of 2000, 2008 would have been kind of a warning for, you know, for so many actors, but it doesn't feel like we've really learned that many lessons from that experience. And, you know, it's, I think it's a very generous take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it uh, definitely feels like we're heading for something much, much worse eventually. Um, but nobody really knows. I keep, I keep hoping for that, but it doesn't seem, <laughs> it doesn't seem to ever happen. I don't know. I'm like that guy. Like I, I said this the other day, like I root for the asteroid. You know, like I'm, I'm actively like rooting for the asteroid at this point. Like, I don't, I don't know. It, it, I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say, but it's just every time I feel like we're getting to a point where this is going to get better or we're going to shift things in a, in a slightly different direction. It never seems to really take. It just seems like, you know, those who are going to get hurt, get hurt. Mm -hmm. And then we just kind of keep keep it moving, right? Even if it was COVID, right? At one point I thought, oh, the pandemic will kind of give us an, opportun an opportunity to reset, not in that asshole conspiracy conservative language way, but in a, in a true looking at what brought us to this moment, all of the connective tissue in that complexity, mm -hmm. and then saying, hmm, perhaps there's an opportunity <laughs> to do this differently, right? Yeah. Yeah. That shit didn't happen, right? We started fighting over mask policies on jet blue flights, right? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, that that moment was seemed to have been lost even as as the pandemic rages on. So I wonder like what gets us to a, a real reckoning of the fact that we might have in many ways outgrown this system. You know, like can we continue to keep doing this, right? Like Mm -hmm. At some point, there ain't going to be no more oil in the ground, right? It's, at some point, the water is not going to be capable of being being consumed, right? The air will become unbreathable. Mm -hmm. And despite the fantasies of the lunatics like Elon Musk and others, no, very few episodes go by without me shitting on someone like Elon Musk, by the way. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. You know, we're not going to another planet. Like, I hate to break the news to anybody out there who's still holding out hope for anything that sounds remotely like that. That is not going to happen. So this is what we got. <laughs> this is this is the marble that we have. Mm -hmm. Can this marble sustain us under the way in which these systems are currently operating? Well, I mean, according to all the climate scientists, no. <laughs> uh <laughs> In a word. But they're just a bunch of kooks, right? Like, we don't have to yeah. listen to them anymore. This is all debatable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I read um, 
Jane Jacobs. Yeah, Jane Jacobs book called Dark Days Ahead, which was written, I think, in 2005. So it even, I think that's right. I might be wrong on that, but I think it preceded the financial crash. But yeah, it's interesting, you know, and, and other like why, why civilizations fail and, you know, these different kind of looking at why, why large civilizations do collapse inward on themselves, essentially. And often it is because there is a overextension of resource use and to the, to the point where the civilization becomes much too large to manage the material base that they have and that like people forget we think that we're on this constant upward trajectory of progress but actually if you look historically there have been many times where we've made progress you know quote unquote progress and and then have a major civilizational collapse and then sort of spent 100 200 300 years in relative like darkness if you will before we figure out a way to move forward. And so, you know, I think that is very plausible to happen again. And, you know, and also there's a historian, Will and Ariel Durant, and they talk about these cycles of like essentially wealth accumulation and wealth dispersion and that, you know, wealth accumulates very slowly until it kind of reaches that exponential curve where then it starts accumulating quite quickly and then it disperses very quickly. And often it's because of war or famine or bloodshed or, you know, something pretty cataclysmic that causes a reset in a way. And that this is like a pattern that we observe all throughout history. And then they also talk about cycles of cooperation and conflict where, you know, essentially we've had like kind of 60 plus years or whatever of relative global cooperation after the world, you know, after World War II. And now it's clear that we're sort of like entering that period where people are becoming much more nationalistic. There's like a defensiveness, you know, that's happening politically. All the while, we need more global cooperation in many ways, right? Because we share the same material base. So we don't really have a historical precedent in terms of like the scale of something like this happening because it's no longer regional, it's global. It's like, you know, the, the entire global civilization is so interdependent now that nobody really knows how an emergent system like this is going to react when you have these types of system shocks. But yeah, unfortunately, I agree with you. Like, I think that sometimes it takes something pretty cataclysmic to kind of set us set us back to at least like somewhere near <laughs> zero, you know, or whatever to to kind of like move forward from there. But there's always going to be winners in those scenarios. And unfortunately, yeah. the winners are like, very adept at knowing how to use their position to accumulate more assets when that happens or, you know, buy things on the cheap, et cetera. So I've seen that since the savings and loans scandal back in the day. Perfect example. I was a young, a young, 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 young person at that time, but you know, huge, huge in a lot of ways, I guess we kind of owe savings and loans. George W. Bush, he came out of that with some assets that he turned into the Texas Rangers that he turned into being governor of, um, of Texas. Right. Mm. Damn it. Mm. <laughs> damn, damn you savings and loan scandal. But, um, well, and, and there was so much concentration during COVID too, just to get to, to your point, because, um, you know, like a lot of companies were sitting on cash, private equity firms had huge amounts of dry powder as they call it. And, you know, and then they have all these distressed assets that it's like easy to buy them on the cheap. And so that's what we saw. Private equity had like a massive boom during COVID. It was like one of the biggest M&A waves in history. And and so unfortunately, it only further consolidated industries and, you know, and wealth. And, and you know, there's all there's always people underneath all this. Right. So mm-hmm. we kind of started this conversation kind of weaving around and, and talking about how we think so much about you know, what is the market and how, how does the, how is the market going to solve these problems? And when I start to, when I try to think about emerging futures and plural, I, I kind of start with a different question, right? Which is, you know, what do we want our society to look like, right? Like what is considered healthy and viable for all of us, all of us being the vast majority of us, you know, even this notion of winners and losers, you know, I'm a very annoying person at cocktail parties, right? Because I'm like, you know, I don't really know what those words mean. Like, how do we define someone who is a winner or a loser, right? I know how it works out in the in the system in which we have, because I see them neglected 
in so many parts of the world, even in, in, in a city like New York City, there's lots of that, right? In the one people will say one of the wealthiest cities in the world, wealthiest country in the world, and there's, you know, nothing but failure all around us, right? So how do we answer that bigger question in a context of this particular economic system, which is capitalism? And is capitalism even concerned with that question about what type of society that we're making? So kind of two questions in that soliloquy. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Is capitalism concerned with that? It doesn't seem like it is necessarily, although, you know, although those sort of like early economic writers, many of them were wrestling with these questions of how to, you know, how to how to organize a society in an ethical way. And I think it's too bad because there's been there's been so much great scholarship and thinking that is heterodox or sort of non-normative economic thinking, whether it's feminist economics or um, ecological economics or, you know, other fields. There's a whole movement as well now um, called like diversifying and decolonizing economics in the that started in Europe. And so there's so much incredible scholarship about these questions or like political economy, essentially. How do you organize the economy in service of, you know, political aims that has really just been sidelined and deplatformed for a variety of reasons. But it doesn't mean that it's, I mean, that it's not there. And I think that a lot of people are thinking, you know, incredibly deeply about these questions, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I think that those really are the core questions is, is like, what do we want? You know, if the meaning of economy, right, is house management. It's like, what do we want how do we want to collectively manage and participate? What does it mean to live a good life? I mean, what does it, where do we find meaning and value in ourselves and in our relationships and in our society? And something, a, a question I've been thinking a lot about recently is, you know, this question of like, how do we understand value? What is economic value even? And the easiest thing that we've, we've landed on is price, which is like where the, where a, singular transaction takes place between two people and that, that we put a value on that and its price. And, and, and yet there's all these other ways of thinking about value. And David Graeber has done some really interesting work on like moving away from a price theory of value to a relational theory of value, because any one interaction like that, even if it's a transaction or an exchange is embedded in a web of relationships in a complex system that has all these other spillover effects, other forms of value that aren't represented in the price. And what would it look like to actually move towards a deeper understanding of this kind of value? And so that's a question that's very live for me right now. And yeah, I think there's enormous work to be done here because we're really so far away <laughs> from being able to think about this in a comprehensive way. And then and not only think about it, but then like instantiate it through the institutions, through the normative economic frames, you know, through all these different, all these different things. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, and I'm glad that you surfaced that there, there are many folks out there wrestling with these ideas, right? Like we're, we're not beholden to, let's call it popular economic thought and discourse, that there is an opportunity to engage with different schools of, of thinking about economic society and, and building relationships and connections that not only challenge the dominance of the sort of market essentialism of capitalism, but are attempting to offer alternatives, right? So mm -hmm. I don't want to suggest that there aren't others kind of wrestling with these things and thinking of those things and you far more eloquently than me um, surface that. What I what I do want to get to in the time that we have left, come keep an eye on the time. And um, I, I, I want to get to the final two segments of the show, Off the Dome and The Drop. But one of the things that I that I have noticed that does that has happened in these spaces is there is a sort of social or political argument that comes into capitalist spaces or conversation around capitalism that sort of breaks down, particularly in a Western or American, particularly in American way, about left versus right, right? So we kind of mm. get into this, well, the left thinks this and the right thinks that, and right's pro-capitalist in some some way, shape, or form, the left is not. We're all socialist, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and and that becomes the thing, right? Right, right. Because binaries are always really helpful. Yeah, binaries <laughs> are always helpful, right? And I, I wonder 
sometimes if that doesn't obscure deeper connections between the left and right when it comes to capitalism because i don't really see that many differences to be to be quite honest like yes of course there's socialists out there and but i'm like nah not really like it's still kind of operating under still the same thing yeah to, yeah to a certain extent so i wonder if even the left right debate quote unquote isn't kind of a smokescreen to kind of keep us arguing about like the margins of this playing around with a few little knobs and buttons rather than looking at a more wholesale like critique of, of this to a certain extent. So heavy question to kind of end on before no, we get no. into the lighter parts, but I didn't want to leave that, leave that off the table and it is in my notes. <laughs> no, thank you. No, I think it's really a stupid question. And I totally agree that. And I mean, just because I've spent more time like thinking about anti-monopoly policy, that's where my mind goes. But if you look over the last 40 years, both Democrats and Republicans have been equally complicit in concentrating markets to this insane degree by relaxing merger policy and, you know, be cozying up to dominant firms and all this kind of stuff. So it's not a left right thing. I think you're absolutely right that our political apparatus and serves in many ways the the sort of neoliberal neoliberal economic agenda. But I also think that on the hopeful side, we have seen based on some of our organizing, particularly of small businesses who tend to be span the political spectrum, we've seen a lot of bipartisan support actually for action on anti-monopoly um, political you know, agenda items. So working with the FTC, working with the DOJ, working with the White House to say, hey, I'm a farmer in Iowa and I hate John Deere because they're a monopoly and they don't let me repair my own tractor and I want someone to do something about it. And then they'll be on the same call with a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who is trying to do a new search engine startup and hates Google, you know, or whatever. And like, so they all are expressing I mean, not to glaze over it, like, of course, there's differences, but I think that there's this is one area of bipartisan support that is really interesting. And it's not just tech. It's really it's like speaking to real entrepreneurs, real small business owners or independent business owners who are facing barriers to just building a business to, you know, support their family and their community they want to see this stuff change. They want to see the system change in their favor. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. And, you know, from my perspective, an antitrust policy is one effective way of doing that. Yeah. We need to bring back the the trust busters, right? We need a kind of a Roosevelt Taft continuum to start to go back in time, to go back and take on these in incredible moneyed interest. Yeah. Can I add one more? Yeah. Go for it. Okay. I just remember. I also recently, like my latest uh, blog post on Embodied Economics, which is my newsletter, was talking about how, you know, now there's a huge pushback from the right on ESG and sort of claiming that it's woke capitalism and it's, you know, it's an effort to use private channels that to make decisions that should be politically decided. And I actually think that they're right. They are right in their critique. But the problem is they don't acknowledge that they were the ones that got us here in the first place with the by allowing corporations to have so much power in in our political systems. But the critique that we're letting too much, too many decisions that should be democratically decided and not just through electoral politics, but through true representative democracy, whether that be citizens assemblies or other things be decided through corporations, I think is the right I think it's the right critique. And so if you can align left and right on that critique, I think that there's something powerful there. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I read that piece and I'm always wary of like woke as a thing. I don't believe it exists. Um, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the concept of like how I think about it, I'm like, there can be nothing kind of woke about capitalism. Like it's kind of an oxymoronic kind of statement. I mm. understand they're going to say that because that's their new thing. You know, I'm sure if I was going back to reading like Alan Bloom when I was in college, they would have called it like PC capitalism, right? Like that would have been right. the, if they were if they were on that, that that would have been the way to do it. Mm -hmm. And so now because woke is the thing that they have to say, that's what they've had to say. Right. And I, I just knowing the original derivation of that and the ideology behind it, you can't be both. <laughs> you know, like capitalism mm. is one particular state and, you know, I guess being woke is another <laughs> and the two don't really overlap. But I think that's mm. just their shorthand for saying that liberals are saying something. 
right? Yeah, 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 totally, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Those are words coming out of a, a liberal's mouth. They have the New York Times, right? In there. Well, and that's, yeah, you, again, it like goes back to that power of narrative shaping and yeah. like this, the claiming terms and then building like a whole set of arguments, you know, around yeah. them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really, as to your point, like they're actually just straw men for, you know, deeper, oh, yeah. deeper discussions we should be having. It's like, um, what are some of their others on their hip parade? State rights. That's always a good one. You know, it's all about state rights. Mm -mm. You know, avoiding the, the tyranny of the mob. That's a good one. They have all these terms that they love to throw around. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just spent my, my life kind of diffusing them and ignoring them because they're all, they all boil, boil down to the same thing, right? Yeah, just, yeah. You know, we're mad that we don't own people anymore, you know? <laughs> Mm. those were the good old days <laughs> oh my gosh so, yeah yeah that's that's their argument no matter what they say i'm always like you're just mad that you don't own people anymore <laughs> that's it <laughs> me and jane had another funny you know we mentioned jane engel on the show earlier so shout out to jane engel she had to hear me at a merge give my theory as to all the gurus and you know all these people out there who are like spiritual leaders what when, it, when they're done with all their talking, everything just boils down to one thing, that you'll figure it out if you just touch my dick. That's it. <laughs> all these men that are predators will solve your problems if you just let them do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and all these guys who talk about like all this stuff being woke, they're just mad that they don't own me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. 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 No, it's, I, I wouldn't disagree. Yeah. Yeah, that's just my funny little take on it. But I want to get us to the final two segments of the show. So I'm I'm going out on a on a high. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I'm ready. You're ready. So off the dome, it's just an opportunity for me to ask some quick rapid fire questions, all in fun. I'm terrible at these, but let's do it. <laughs> no, you're gonna be you're gonna be you're gonna be great at these. These are these are really good ones, right? Okay, okay, okay. So the book talks about monopoly, anti-monopoly and, and breaking breaking those things down and how competition helps with capitalism, right? So I'm thinking about monopoly, the actual physical game uh -huh, that yeah. we all play, which has actually a very anti-capitalist root. Not yes. many people know that story. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you're playing monopoly, what's your favorite piece? Everybody has a favorite piece when they're playing. Monopoly. Oh, the hat. <laughs> I don't even know why. It just it feels good in your hand and it's, yeah. it's flat and it doesn't fall over like the horse or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the horse is a bullshit piece, right? It's like just some dude like, like yeah, a statue. Yeah. Yeah. Sucks. Wait, what's your favorite piece? I like the car. Oh, the car is great. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny because I don't really like cars. That's the irony of it. I've always liked to play with the car, but I've, as a kid growing up, you know, I'm a dude. So, you know, hetero. Nope. Don't give a shit about cars. <laughs> They're just shiny, useless, combustible things. I don't. Yeah, care about yeah, them yeah, at all. yeah. But when playing Monopoly, I do like the car. I love this question because it is like <laughs> now I'm psychoanalyzing myself. I'm like, why do I like the hat? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I should really like the hat because I wear a lot of hats. But no, the hat mm. isn't my first choice. Maybe if I'm trying to be like noble, I'll be like, mm -hmm, okay, I'll take the hat. Mm -hmm. But in, deep in my heart, I want the car. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Okay. So again, we we met in person at an event obviously mm -hmm. someone who has spent a lot of time in a lot of different spaces. If you were putting together an event, could be anything, could be a conference or maybe like a really big party. If you could have one band perform there or artists, doesn't have to be a band, who would that be? Oh, okay. I do have a favorite band. They're Canadian. They're called Half Moon Run. And I feel like they should be 10,000 times bigger than they are. But I don't know what it is about their music. I just, I, it never gets old to me. I love it. I think they're incredibly talented. They all play multiple instruments. You know, their their live shows, they sound like even better than on the album, which is, you know, doesn't happen often these days. So does it happen hardly ever? Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're my favorite band. And I feel like they've got a good mix of kind of slower tunes as well as like good dance bops where you can... You could get the yeah. crowd going. Yeah. Yeah. Do a little, do a little jig, do the whole mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. I get it. When, <laughs> I have a band like that as well. And they're actually Canadian that I feel like they should be bigger than they are, even though they're pretty popular, but not selling out Madison Square Garden popular, which is called Stars. And they're from Montreal and I love them. And ah. I always think like they should be like one of the biggest bands in the world, but they're a, a very great niche band 
but I always wish them that they had more ease of success, even though they're very mm. successful, but not like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, Coldplay successful. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I'm going to check them out. I mean, there's lots of good ba- Actually, that band that I mentioned is from Montreal, and uh, Kate Renata is from Montreal. There's lots yeah. of so much, so much good music that comes yeah. out of there. Montreal has a lot of great music. Um, another mm-hmm. band, The Deers, Broken Social Scene. Oh, yeah. You mm-hmm. know, Arcade Fire, like yep, yep, all yep. those bands I loved back in the day. Mm. So shout out to Canada and Montreal and continually giving us music yay so my final off the dome question is if you can guarantee yourself having one thing in life that's not financial what would it be oh wow this is a great question yeah i stumped you yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean i guess you should just go with your gut answer which the first thing that came to mind was something around the ability to you know give and receive love freely and have you know, a beautiful network of loving, trusted relationships around me. That's huge. That's, you know, many people spend their life trying to earn money so they can buy that. Mm. (laughs) Right. And they, and they never get it. Right. So Mm -hmm. they're, what you described is likely priceless. So that's a good one. See, you are good at these. (laughs) Thank you. Do you have an answer for that? (laughs) You know, I was going to say instinctively kind of health. You know, yeah, kind of just yeah. across bucket of things. Like I always feel like I went to go see Rage Against the Machine last week, and mm. Zach De La Roque, who's the lead singer, he hurt his leg, and so he had to sit. And sitting is not his natural state of being, mm. but he was still like rocking out so hard. And I was watching wow. him, and I was like, if I try to do even a fraction of what he's doing, and I'm not hurt, I would blow my body apart into a million pieces. Like I would be right. one of those like GI <laughs> Joe that you just watch hit the concrete and just burst (laughs) into you know (laughs) so i'm like health (laughs) like i just want to be healthy and i am but i want to be even even as i get older i want to maintain like being a healthy person a generally healthy person yeah totally totally yeah that one cycled through my list of options another thing that's super expensive (laughs) oh yeah yeah not in canada though not in canada but here in the u.s nobody gives a fuck about if you're healthy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they yeah, just, they're just like, hey, get some Robitussin or they're just going to throw a tarp on you and just get rid of your body when you're done. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. <laughs> so now we're going to get to the drop and, okay. and the drop is just anything at all that our listeners should know about. Could be light, cool, funny. It doesn't really matter. I usually go first just to set the tone. Okay. And in keeping with this kind of capitalist conversation, I'm going to recommend that um, listeners check out a show on at least in the U.S., is on HBO Max. It could be on other streaming, depending on where you live in the world. But it's called The Industry. And um, season two just started maybe a couple of weeks ago. And it's like, I watch it. I love the show. I, but I jokingly say it's like PTSD for me, kind of watching the show because I was a trader. So it's like I'm reliving uh... like nightmare scenarios, but it's still entertaining um, in a way that like a lot of people really like The Billions. And I hated that show. I think it was pretty stupid. And I only... I didn't even watch the first season of it. So for all mm. the people out there who thought Billions was a good like, kind of Wall Street-esque show, the industry is much better than Billions. So mm. industry season two is my drop, HBO Max, or streaming wherever around the world. That's wow, my drop. that's good. Okay. I haven't, um, I haven't watched Billions, but I will check out the industry. It sounds great. Okay. I'm trying to pull up my recommendation so I don't like mispronounce it or oh no worries i mean not mispronounce it but i need to find the right link to it but i came across this thing the other day this is the first thing that came to mind which was it's an initiative of the biomimicry institute and they basically have put together a catalog of 1700 different sort of natural sort of nature-based solutions if you will of of how different Uh, animals or different ecosystems solve problems or have been really innovative in, you know, evolutionarily innovative. And so let's see here. I'm already liking this. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. So it's called asknature.org. We've curated more than 1700 strategies developed by living things that achieve thousands of different functions. And so you can look it up by category. You can look it up by thing you're trying to solve for. It's basically just like a catalog of all this bio inspiration. So I thought it was really cool. Oh, that's awesome. I'm, I'm going to check that out right away. That was, that's, nice. a, that's a super cool one, right? Like I think, um, I often think about that because when I, I look at 
things built by, you know, different animals or insects and stuff. I'm off, I'm often blown away by how beautiful they are, right? Like mm-hmm. you look at like a wasp nest because we had like an old wasp nest in the backyard a couple of years ago. Just a wonderful thing, right? It's like we think we're, we're the only ones who build things and we build towers to the sky that don't withstand the wind. And wasps can just build this amazing thing, right? That withstands so much, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, and they have like, you know, motion, you know, because I've become really obsessed too with different forms of intelligence and different kinds of, um, like there's this word um, welt that I just discovered, which is like every species or every you know thing has its own little sensory bubble of how it experiences the world. And as humans, yeah. we are so limited. There's so many things that other natural creatures, you know, their intelligence or their sensory perception is well in advance of ours. And so the way that they experience the world is totally different. And so therefore the things that they have done or the things that they can do, like an octopus changing colors and having its skin, you know, morph into all these different things. It's like, we can't do that. That's incredible. And how do we, yeah, are there, are there lessons we can learn from that? You know, how would we apply that to different kinds of design? Um, So I, I find that those are rabbit holes I like to go down. Yeah. Those are, those are good, good rabbit holes. Speaking of animals, right? <laughs> like those are oh, yeah, beautiful, yeah, yeah. <laughs> beautiful rabbit holes to go down. You know, this has been a, a, a wonderful conversation. I, I appreciate kind of taking the time with me and, and being patient with my, my street noise from the week before, which was a catastrophic interruption to my life. Oh, um, no. So we were so we were able to do this in a far more peaceful and quiet environment. Even though I think an ice cream truck did go by, so people might have heard that a little bit. But nonetheless, Denise, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. The book is called The Myth of Capitalism. It's a it's a wonderful, really thoughtful read, and I think we got a chance to hear your kind of updated perspective on it. Right, so you might want to do a new edition. Right? Yeah, yeah. Plant the seed. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. This has been so much fun. I really enjoyed it. And more of my like sort of recent thinking and writing is happening via my newsletter called Embodied Economics. So that's if people want to kind of keep up with me, that's probably the best place. Yeah. And we're going to and we're going to link to that in the show notes as well. So that'll be included for everybody to kind of check out. And and I've been going to it. I subscribed, actually. <gasps> thank you. Wow. That's big. I always... There's a lot of good stuff out there. So I'm always yeah. incredibly grateful when people subscribe. No, I try to read it all. And, you know, I read quite a few pieces on it in preparation for, for our conversation. And it's a, it's a wonderful addition to my reading. So keep it up. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, this, is, this has been fantastic. And yeah, I feel like you should do an episode on anime at some point. Yeah. I got- <laughs> We spoke about that before we started recording, but absolutely, there there might be in the future an all an all anime conversation on on the deep dive. You know, that would be awesome because it's a, it's a very interesting topic, actually. I want to learn about it, so I'm going to put in a vote for that one. All right, You're, I'm, you, we casted one vote for that episode. So thanks again for joining me on the show. Thanks, Philip. Take care. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.